Well, if you got your Bibles, if you'll uh, turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles uh, to uh, John chapter 11, whichever is appropriate for you, whether or not you've got physical Bible with you, if you've got your smartphone or your iPad, or if you want to grab the Bible that's there in the seat back in front of you, I, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 11. Uh, last week, I spent uh, the message moving through the better part of this particular chapter, and I want to finish out the story this morning as to what happens. Uh, just as a, a quick reminder, last week we looked at the passage where Jesus uh, goes and raises a man from the dead, a man by the name of Lazarus, who is his friend. And then if I can pick up here in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45, and uh, want to just walk us through the rest of that passage this morning. As we continue to think about the idea of what does it look like to chase life, knowing that most likely for all of us, as, as much as we would like to think that we're on the right path and we're headed toward the right direction and we're the ones who are figuring things out, really life is chasing us. And I don't mean in the way that uh, every day you're in the middle of the rat race, you're on the hamster wheel, you're constantly trying to get things done, chores here, there, wherever, projects, but in a very real, spiritual, eternal kind of way. The God of the universe it has been like the hound of heaven looking for you, chasing you down. It, it is not that somehow we figure these things out and, and then uh, somehow we've solved the algorithms of eternity, and, and, and therefore we have figured out God and we have figured out a path to Him, uh, but rather we see consistently throughout the Scripture that God is the great missionary of eternity who is constantly coming after us. It, it is Jesus who comes down to earth after us. It is the Holy Spirit who is working on our hearts, uh, that, that is uh, convicting us and, and causing us to see our great need for Him. Uh, it is the God of the universe who comes looking for you. And then in this passage, we once again see how it is that, that Jesus goes out to do something incredible and amazing, not just for the sake of one man, but for the very glory of God to be known upon the earth. So he does this, and, and we see that he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he calls Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, out of the tomb, and Lazarus gets up from the dead, and he comes out of the tomb. So what is the response of the crowd all around uh, to, the, to the raising of a dead man? John chapter 11, verse 45, gives us the description of what happens next. It says, therefore, so because Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He did believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, Well, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And he did not say this on his own. But being high priest, that, that year he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted 
to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. And now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that he could, so they could arrest him. Let me just ask the Lord to guide our thoughts this morning as uh, we consider an important lesson from this passage. Father, uh, our minds get so very easily and quickly cluttered by the things of the world, by the issues of our flesh, uh, by the temptations that come from the adversary. Uh, so we are asking that this morning that uh, Your Holy Spirit would burn away those things which are clouding our judgment, uh, that the Holy Spirit would fill us once again with His wisdom and with His power. And, and Lord, where it is necessary that You would convict us in our sin, that You would comfort those in their pain, and that You would cause all of us once again uh, to hold up the image of Christ within our lives, within our hearts, that He would have our full attention and our whole affections. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Last week I made the claim that I am willing to stand beside that if Jesus is the resurrection, as He claims earlier in chapter 11, and that He is resurrected from the dead, that nothing else matters. And, and conversely, if Jesus is not the resurrection and He is not resurrected from the dead, the same holds true, nothing else matters. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, uh, then you are wasting your time being in a worship service to Him. You're worshiping uh, a, a, a Middle Eastern charlatan who is dead and buried and his bones are rotting in a grave somewhere. But if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, if He does have the power of resurrection, then there is nothing else in the world that matters nearly as much as that. Now, here in this passage, Jesus does the impossible, the unthinkable. This is why we call it a miracle rather than a common. I mean, a common thing is I drive down the road. A common thing is I get up and I drink my coffee. Uh, this morning I had three cups of coffee, so, you know, we'll see how the sermon goes. I, there are all sorts of commonalities to life, but this is not just a miracle. It is the miracle that any of these people could have witnessed to this point. Uh, many of them had been present for Jesus to accomplish certain miracles. They had seen Him uh, make a blind man see. They had been present when Jesus had cast out evil spirits out of someone who had been possessed and oppressed by them. He had, they had seen all sorts of physical miracles take place. They had, uh, Jesus had multiplied food. He had turned water into wine. He had commanded storms to be still and to blow away. But this this is the miracle of all of the miracles that Jesus is accomplishing during His earthly ministry, and that is that He is causing a man who is for certain dead, dead, dead to get up out of a grave. I mean, this is a guy that, if you'll remember the story from last week, Jesus intentionally waits to the fourth day to show up at the tomb of Lazarus because there was this mythological idea that the spirit of a human being would hang around the tomb for the first three days after death so that there might be some possibility 
of reunification with the body and a resurrection. But Jesus waits even until past the heathen pagan ideas that maybe a resurrection could happen until there's no hope whatsoever that somebody could get up out of the grave. And then he goes to the, to the, to the tomb of Lazarus. He commands them to move the stone back, which again, this is not like a simple procedure. This is a major effort that people have to go to. This is a big, big rock in front of the, the, the mouth of a cave and the side of a hill. They move the stone away, and Jesus calls for Lazarus to come out, and it says that he comes out. If you look there in verse 44, the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth, and Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. This is a man that they had prepared for the eternal sleep. They had mummified his body. They had wrapped him all up, and here he comes shuffling out of the grave. So, this is the miracle. Uh, this is not something that you can, uh, that, that they could guess whether or not they could, he could kind of pull some kind of switcheroo on everybody. Uh, this was something that was public, uh, something that was well known. As you read through the story of Lazarus's death in the morning, it says people came from other towns in order to mourn with his sisters, Mary and Martha. So this was not like a private thing that happened that nobody was around to watch. This was something that happened in the, in, in the public view of many, many witnesses. And what is the response then of people? It says that some believed in him, but some went and tattled on him. Uh, there were others that were still skeptical. They still had an agenda going on. And so they went and they told the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the chief priests then convened what is known as the Sanhedrin, which was a quasi-political council. It was a, a group of religious people that the Roman Empire allowed to have a certain amount of political jurisdiction there in those, in those days. And so the Sanhedrin, though a religious body, had great political impact on the city. And so they asked the question, what are we going to do since this man is doing so many signs, since he's accomplishing so many wonders? What are we going to do? Which is a really great question, if they had the right agenda. The problem is they had the wrong agenda. It would be a great question for all of us to ask this morning, in light of what Jesus has done, what are we going to do? But that's not how they asked it. They want to ask it in the sense of, what are we going to do to undercut this guy? This guy is stealing the show. He's stealing the spotlight from us. What are we going to do about it? He's making trouble for us. And I want to say, exactly, he's making trouble for you. All the work that Jesus does is to make trouble for you. It is to undercut everything about your life. It is to undermine everything that you've been relying on. It is to flip upside down everything that you thought that you were going to stand upon, all of the accomplishments, all the reputation, all of the do-gooding that you were going to do in your life. Right, Jesus' resurrection power comes to undermine and undercut all of that. He says, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, the horror. <laughs> and then we get to the heart of it. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is what they're really worried about. And then the powers of the earth are going to come and take away 
the stuff of the earth that we have. This is where it gets down to the heart of what the Sanhedrin, what, the, what these religious legalists were really worried about. We're going to lose our place, our reputation. We're going to lose our stuff. You know, I got stuff. Angie and I, we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary this past week. Um, thanks. Let's be honest, babe, that was for you. Um, because that's, you know, it's quite the feat. So thanks. Thanks for re-upping with me. Um, we got stuff. When, um, when we moved here, we had to get rid of stuff because we had too much stuff to move. You know, recently we were going through our house and thinking about, you know, all the stuff we still have, you know, things that, that have been in the same box that it came from Nashville in two years ago that hasn't been cracked open because we got so much stuff. Uh, recently there's uh, some uh, viral sensation. Who's the, uh, the lady who does the, she's got the show online about uh, Marie, something or another, that, you know, you're supposed to go through your house and, and pick something up, and if it gives you a spark of joy to keep it. That's why I stay away from my dog. Um, I know, it's so sad. And, 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 uh, and you know that this lady is a heretic, or I do, because she said, um, and I quote, uh, no, no house needs more than 30 books. Like, what is wrong with that lady? I mean, is that like uh, per nightstand? I mean, because I got that covered. Yeah, we do. We worry about our stuff, how it's organized in our house, who's going to see our stuff. You know, are they going to see the best part of our stuff? You know, am I going to get to keep my life in this neat kind of posture that I want it to be? The, the, the people… Now, now this was a, a, a real issue. This was a, a real um, quandary that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin thought that they were in. They had already had their land overrun by the Roman Empire. They were under the oppressive boot of an oppressive empire that liked to enslave people. Uh, they had had uh, things taken away from them that, that they didn't think would ever be taken away from them. But here's what they did have that they had waited centuries for. The Messiah. The one who had resurrection power. And yet, they were still worried about their stuff. I, they, and if there's anybody in the nation of Israel, among all the Hebrew people, who are supposed to recognize that the Messiah had showed up and that He had done everything necessary to prove that He was the Messiah, it's supposed to be these guys. And yet, it shows to us just how deeply the claws of human desire sink into our souls, in that they were not worried that this might actually be the Messiah who was going to save not just the people of Israel, but the people of the world from their sins. They were worried that our place is going to be taken away. And when they say our place, they meant their position of power within the culture. We're going to lose our positions of power. We're going to lose what we think is a nation state because this guy keeps raising people from the dead. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe you want to go with the guy who can raise people from the dead. So Caiaphas, who is the high priest in this particular year, stands up, gets snarky and sarcastic, and he says, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. This is the Alabama Baptist standard version of this verse. And then he, he states, he says, don't you guys remember that I actually had a prophecy about this? And John, who is writing the gospel, gives to us this divine interpretation of it all. And he, and he says, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Verse 50, inadvertently within Caiaphas's life, is the greatest thing he's ever going to say. I mean, he's thinking, no, the best thing that could possibly happen is for this guy to get in so much trouble with the Romans that they decide to kill him rather than put their attention on us. Wouldn't it be better, this is how Caiaphas thinks about it, that this vagabond weirdo rabbi who's wandering around on the edges of society, isn't it better that they all put their attention on him and wind up executing him than that they would come and take away our place in society. And there is, if we roll it forward, a constant temptation that the believers and the followers of Jesus have always faced. Is it that we really want to follow Jesus, or is it that we really want a place in culture? Is it that we want to follow Jesus with his countercultural, uh, rebellious kind of ways that, that go against the flow of everything of the world, or is it that we really just want to be liked by everybody? Is it that we want to be able to keep our place? John, as he is writing about what Caiaphas says, helps us to see that the high priest, it says there in verse 51, did not say this on his own but that he had prophesied it that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And then in verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. And there comes this moment in all of our lives where we might have the right words of the prophecy and not the right interpretation of it. I mean, Caiaphas had all the right words. I mean, he had, he had the message, he just didn't understand it. The message was very clear. Isn't it better for one guy to die than for the nation to perish? But he, he is still thinking about it in terms of, of time and space and geopolitical forces and economies. He's still thinking about it in a human kind of matrix. Wouldn't it be better if this guy died so that all of us would survive? And Jesus would have been the first one to stand up and say, amen, it is going to be a whole lot better if I die so that all of you can survive. But I'm not talking about your geopolitical forces, and I'm not talking about your great reputation and culture, and I'm not talking about that you can continue to have political power and influence in the Roman Empire. I'm not talking about so that the Sanhedrin can keep getting together so that it can decide who's an insider and who's an outsider, who's in, who's out. Instead, Jesus is, is going to be concerned and was concerned and is still concerned that his death was going to be for the salvation of his people scattered abroad. This comes down, as so much of the Gospel of John does, to an issue of perspective and faith. 
What is your perspective, and where are you going to put your faith? The Sanhedrin, the leaders from Caiaphas all the way through, all of them, had decided that they were going to put their faith in, in, in this terrestrial world. Can we just keep enough power here? Can I keep my life neat and clean and pristine here? Can I preserve power here? Can I have my stuff here? Whereas Jesus is not from here. Jesus already had everything that Jesus deserves, and He abandons all of that so that He can come and live the filthy, grimy existence of earth so that you and I can become the once scattered and now unified people of God of the kingdom. You see, the, the Sanhedrin had a very earthly view of what sacrifice could bring. Jesus was constantly keeping an eternal view. If you want to keep your stuff of, of the earth, you can. You can have it. You can have it all. You can have your closets filled with stuff. You can have your garages filled with stuff. You can have your bookshelves lined with stuff. You can have a, a life that is neat and clean and untouched by those people, those other people, those dirty people, those unsullied people. You, know, you, you can keep your life completely like that if you want, and you can keep all your stuff of earth. Or you can go the way of our Master which was the way of sacrifice and death, which was the way of, of giving up the stuff of the earth for the stuff of eternity, which means that God was going to unite a scattered people from across the world. You heard over the last few weeks reports from the mission team that Angie and I were on with the kings to go to Uganda and the mission team from uh, that John led over to Jordan. Uh, periodically through the life of our church, we, we get to see the, the kids from uh, the children's ministry sing in church, or we experience uh, reports from uh, the student ministry when they've been on uh, some kind of retreat, or uh, you, you hear these various stories of, uh, of interaction with ministry into the Ballard community or uh, wherever. You're in your life group, and somebody tells you about how they uh, participated in ministry to single moms or to the anchor house or whatever. And it is constantly this choice that we have to make of, of, are we going to just simply try to build a wall and build a hedge so that we can protect the stuff that we have of earth? And I'm really glad that Jesus died so that I could set up my own evangelical Amish community so that we don't have to be touched by the world. Or is it that we recognize that the death of Jesus, that His arrival as the Messiah, was so that we could be the vanguard of the kingdom of God, breaking into the rest of the world, constantly introducing the light of life where there is nothing but darkness and sin and death? The Sanhedrin made a really bad choice. They just wanted to see Jesus executed so that they could deflect attention from themselves, rather than recognizing that the death of Jesus was actually the God of the universe putting His attention fully on all of us and our need for salvation. So, how is it that you see Jesus 
Is it that Jesus just showed up to make your life comfortable and neat and put a hard shell of protection around it uh, to make sure that your, your bank account was guarded and that your life was guarded and that your kids were guarded and so that, 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 that you, know, you didn't have to worry about anything else? Or, or, or do you see Jesus as the one who has called you to the same radical death to self that, that is replete throughout the Bible? Uh, Last Sunday night in our life group, we were looking at a passage where Jesus calls the believers to take up their cross and follow Him. It is an image that painfully has lost much of its dramatic impact upon us. We didn't do this on purpose or with intentionality, but we've just done it, because when we think about a cross, we think cross something that has been uh, carefully uh, crafted to hang pristinely uh, in a sanctuary, or a, uh, a piece of jewelry that has been polished just right to hang around your neck. Uh, this is what the cross is in our modern day. So, I asked our life group, I said, uh, what would be the modern equivalent if Jesus had lived during our day and time, and, and, and He said, uh, take up your cross and follow me, what would he have said? And, and one of the members of the, of the group said, uh, he would have said, take up your electric chair. It, it would have been, uh, you know, take up a noose, take up the firing squad, take up your electric chair. This was a, a, a radical, uh, almost, this is, a, this is a, a, a violent kind of statement that Jesus is making. You have got to be willing to sacrifice, to give, to lay down, uh, to, to not be in any mode of self-preservation whatsoever. Because the Sanhedrin, they're in nothing but a mode of self-preservation. How do we get Jesus' death in some sort of way to benefit us so that we can preserve the lives that we desire here on the earth? You know, who cares about eternity? I just want to make sure that I got what I want here. But Jesus comes, and though they're plotting against Him, He is plotting for us so that His death might unite a people under faith in His true resurrection so that we might have the gift of eternity, life, forgiveness, and a redeemed relationship with the Father. You have to make a decision about this. For those of you that are not Christians, you have to decide. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then nothing else matters religiously, spiritually, earthly. Nothing else matters. Now, if you want to decide that Jesus is a lunatic and that the, the whole Bible is a big fairy tale, then that is a decision I'll be happy to talk through all of that with you. But if you're willing to admit and confess that Jesus did get up out of the grave, then nothing else matters, and you are at that moment of desperation, of needing His forgiveness and, a, and redemption between you and God that is found exclusively through Him. And then for us as believers, and I, and I will speak of us collectively as a church family, 
This has got to be the guiding force of everything, that it is the resurrection of Jesus. It is not. Jesus does not rise from the dead so that we can have the best programming. There's no programming that's coming to save our attendance or our budget or to come to save a ministry or to come and salvage anything. There's no programming coming to do that. The resurrection of Jesus does that. The resurrection of Jesus is intended not to save programs but to save lives because there are people that are one block over that way and that way and that way that don't have life in Christ. There are people that are right across the street from you every day that don't have life in Christ. Uh, there, are, uh, there are entire subdivisions and communities all around us that have no life in Christ. And we can either utilize the resurrection of Jesus in order to build a hard shell around our campus so that this becomes a place that we come and hide from the rest of the dirty, filthy world, or it can become the motivation that sends us out as emissaries, ambassadors, and as soldiers within this great spiritual battle, ambassadors for the, the grace of God, emissaries for the truth of the resurrection, that we carry it to people that are trapped in darkness. We can use it one of two ways. You can use the gospel to create a subculture or you can live the gospel to, to be the counterculture, calling people to life. And this morning, I want to encourage you, uh, don't go the way of Caiaphas, but instead come the way of Jesus. Come the way of Jesus, who gave his life so that you can have life, so that you can constantly give it away again. Let's pray together.